1: On this podcast, you will hear about and from lesser-known Canadian authors and writers who, for whatever reason, have remained under the radar of traditional publishers and publishing houses. You will also hear from editors, literary agents, and publishers in the hopes of giving us all a better understanding of how it all works together. If it has something to do with writing or the writing process, you are going to hear a discussion about it here. I'm your host, Randy Lacey. I'm encouraging you to grab your bevy of choice, get comfy, and get ready to go between the lines. People come into writing in several different ways. For some, it was a teacher at school handing out a writing assignment. While for others, it may have been by reading and wondering if they might be able to write. Every writer has started their writing journey on a different path. Each writer's journey will be different, yet similar. But one thing all writers have in common is a different destination. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines. On this episode, I will be speaking with author, professional writer, public speaker, Andrew Buckley. The author of such books as stilt Skin, a middle grade book entitled hair in all of the wrong places is that correct that's correct and of course uh death the devil and the goldfish well hello andrew and welcome to between the lines thank you for having me randy i really appreciate it before we get to the heart of the of the podcast could you give us a brief bio of who andrew buckley is
2: uh, yeah, it's uh. Let me see. Where do I begin here? Because you know, Beginning. life life throws you. Oh, okay. Nineteen eighty. It was a cold this <laughs> morning. I, I was um. I was born in England in nineteen eighty, uh, and I lived in England and grew up there for the first seventeen years of my life. While most of my family slowly emigrated to Canada, and I grew up as a overly imaginative child. And then I moved uh, with my family. We immigrated in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, to the Okanagan Valley, uh, where I've lived most of my time on or off, I suppose, over the last uh, 20 something years. And I've done a variety of different, crazy, wonderful careers, none of which I felt passionate about, uh, because I always wanted to be a writer. And that's kind of what I built myself towards. So I'm married, I have children, I'm once divorced, I am now officially a full-time author and writer and public speaker as of last year. And it's been a been a wonderful lifestyle switch for me at this this stage in the game.
1: it Sounds like an interesting life.
2: Where's your accent? Accent's from Manchester. So I have a um I had, I don't have it anymore. I well had, that's, that's the question.
1: Where is your accent? Where did it yeah, go?
2: It, it's it well, when I moved to uh, Canada, 17 years old, moved from Manchester, so I had a really thick Mancunian accent, which majority of people couldn't understand. So I had to actually adopt a Canadian accent because I I was at a weird stage. So 17 years old in Canada, you're in your last year of high school, 17 years old in England, you've graduated secondary school, which is high school equivalent. And you've probably already done a year of college, which was my case. So I moved here to find that I should have been in my last year of high school, but I didn't want to go back and do that again. And so I went straight into college They made an allowance for me to enter early and I had such a thick Mancunian accent that no one could understand the word I was saying. So I adopted a Canadian accent, which is very easy because you just make everything sound like a question. You just got to raise your voice at the end of the sentence and you mostly have a Canadian accent. Very easy to imitate. And after a while, it just came so much easier than my British. And now, you know, I do a lot of speaking and if I speak at length, you'll start to hear words slightly differently. And people start thinking, is it, you know, an accent? Is it a speech impediment? Because I've mm-hmm. had both. Or if I'm, you know, really, really tired and I get a bit lazy with, you know, as an enunciation, then you might hear the British come out. But for the most part, it's dead and gone.
1: It would have been interesting if you picked up the
2: French accent. Yeah, I didn't. But you know what is super weird? Because I don't understand fully how accents and dialects really work. Because in England, you can drive 10 minutes and you're in a different dialect. Canada, I don't hear the differentiation the same way. I can definitely, you know, Newfoundland to BC. Yeah, obviously, but not across most of the provinces but when I came over here I adopted a Canadian accent I went I've been back to England one single time since I emigrated here and when I went if I spoke to my friends I had my Mancunian back instantaneously if I talked to a stranger in England I spoke with a Canadian accent and I still don't know why I assume it was just <laughs> me being polite and that's how I was used to communicating it was quite strange
1: let's uh let's get right into question period here because uh You know, the more I've been finding out about you before we started this, the more I want to know. So, all right, take 17. Do you presently have anything you're working on and how close is it to, uh, you know, completion?
2: (laughs) That's a great question. That's a loaded question. I, let me see. Okay, I definitely have two things that are closer to completion than anything else. I have probably about five or six pieces that are considered works in progress. Yeah. I'm going to reevaluate it. I got three things uh, that are that are probably closer. So I have a sequel to my original novel. So my first novel was death, the devil and the goldfish. And that was published in 2012. People have been waiting 10 years for a sequel to that. I wrote about 70% of it about four years ago. And my Publishers would really, really like me to finish it this year <laughs> so it can be released. So that is probably the closest thing that's to completion that I currently have. Uh, I have a young adult uh fantasy heist novel that uh I started a couple of years ago that I've been slowly working through. Uh and that one is probably not not near completion, but will hopefully I'm trying to get that one done for this year. And then I also have a sci fi. Uh, young adult novel um, which is a loose loosely based on the stories of Peter Pan but like the original darker ones uh, that I've been I started years ago five years ago and I just picked up recently to kind of because I think I saw a sci-fi movie and thought sci-fi I should really (laughs) look at that again and so I started tapping away at that but I always have a lot of stuff on the go that keeps me out of trouble and busy.
1: So what's the longest time between writing then so you started something and 10 years later you've gone back to it or five years is yeah. is that five years the longest you've gone between picking up a project
2: no i probably have stuff that is sitting that i just haven't touched in probably longer periods because I, I i wrote and released stilt skin in 2000 it got released in 2013 and I started the sequel to that, I think, 2015, and I haven't touched that. I think it's like two chapters I've written on the outline, but I haven't actually worked on finishing that particular book. Uh, so, and I haven't gone back to it yet. So the time's still ticking on that one.
1: So that's seven years and
2: counting. Now. Seven years, yeah. I, it's just the nature. I I found myself edged into areas where I had a publisher interested in a, in a particular series, and so I spent you know four years writing the Hair in All the Wrong Places series because. The publisher wanted the sequels. The readers wanted to find out what happened. And so it was just, you know, by force of nature and my literary agent, I I needed to finish those books and get them out the door, which Mm -hmm. caused me to, you know, I might have started something and then I abandoned it or I shelved it for the time being. So I have, like I said, about five or six books that I think are currently works in progress but are Mm -hmm. in various stages of completion.
1: Do you think it's important... For anyone who thinks they're a writer, to get education for it.
2: Oh yes, one hundred percent. It's it's always a case of where you simply don't know what you don't know. So while peop- some people are natural storytellers, you know, more people than ever probably have a novel inside of them, you know, clawing to get out, or have an idea that they've been told, like, wow, that'd be a great story. You should write that. The fact is, you can't sit down and be a novelist. You know, you have to, it's like anything else. It's a skill set. It's, uh, it's something that has to be sharpened and worked on. And I think being a writer is, you know, it's part of being, it's part of lifelong learning. You have to keep working at it, uh, to actually be successful in this particular career. Um, and, you know, there are pros and cons of things like self publishing where, you know, you can just write a novel, you can format it and boom, it's out. But I think it's important that people do get educated about, you know, Proper formatting, proper story structure, character arcs, like all those pieces are, you know, they're they're detrimental to the writing process. And I think it's a mistake to ignore that and just, you know, completely write by the seat of your pants without any kind of education behind you. Part of the reason why
1: I presented this question to you was I'm thinking about, and maybe you've never heard of this person, but have you read the book The Outsiders by
2: S.E. Hinton? I don't believe I've read it, but I have heard of it.
1: Okay, there was a, a movie made. That's why, I, why I've heard it. <laughs> okay, so, well, uh, you know,
2: Patrick Swayze. and
1: Anyway, she was 16 when she wrote that book.
2: Oh, wow, young. I didn't know she was young. Yeah,
1: she was still in school. She was 16. She published the book at 16 years old. She only sold 10 copies in her first year, but now mm-hmm. it's mandatory reading in most schools in Canada and maybe North Absolutely. America. So that that's true. why the education question came up to me
2: i think it's important today i will agree that a lot of authors anybody pre the 80s i think had a very different different educational uh upbringing uh, i think the school system what they taught was very different i think there was more focus on actual writing pre-computer age uh, and the grammatical structure that goes with it which naturally forms around storytelling I don't think that exists in today's school system, so I think upcoming authors do need more specific education for novel writing than what existed, from what they've experienced so far. Not to, you know, crap all over the current educational system in any way, shape, or form. Well, it, it needs to be improved anyway. But... It could use improvement, but I think it was, it's different. And, and I could tell the difference between, you know, being educated in England to, you know, my kids being educated here in Canada my education was really strict. Like we were taught essay writing. We were taught, you know, so many different forms of writing that they're not taught in schools today. So I think education is important for today's up-and-coming novelists. Uh, I can certainly for sure. see that, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But see, the thing is, is like, as we were talking earlier before we started this, you were talking about my life experience when you were hearing about it. And you said, there's a lot of stories and material that I could draw from to write. So I could just sit down and write it all out. But you know what? That's what we have editors for, ghostwriters for. That is true. And all these different people that can take what you've put down and improve it for you.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If you so got the money, Randy. It sounds if you like got the co- money. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it. You can definitely pay people to ghostwrite. You can pay people to edit and proof and format. And absolutely. But the kind of bill you're looking for for a novel these days, if you were going to employ people to do all that, would be, you know, in the thousands. Easy. I do not know a whole
1: lot of um, authors who are independently wealthy before I don't know. writing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know any. <laughs> I don't <think> <laughs> Especially you were, Especially
1: in Canada. But anyway, that's another
2: story. That is a different story.
1: How much of yourself would you say uh, goes into something you write?
2: Ooh, a lot of it. I think it's very natural to imbue your characters with, you know, an essence with personality traits of yourself. I think that's a very normal thing to do, because you write best as to as what you know and what you experience. Uh, I've taken people that I've known and put them in novels. I've taken people I don't like and put them in novels and killed them no, off. No. Like, yeah, it's ther- ther- therapeutic. Um, very much so. It's <laughs> better than killing them in real life. I mean, Saver. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, think how much writing I'd get done in prison. You know, it'd be great. <sighs> oh. Man. no distractions be it's awesome. amazing
1: that there aren't a lot more bestsellers written out of
2: prison you think so they must be doing something wrong <laughs> <laughs> education system education system that's the <laughs> education piece um so yes there is a lot of me in uh, bits and pieces of me you know smattered throughout my writing and also you know my kids especially the more middle grade i write and the older they get um they a lot of their personality traits get thrown in there plus Oh, man, just experiences and people, like you said, you, you've had, you've lived an experiential life, it's impossible for that stuff not to bleed over uh, into your writing, and I have a pretty quirky imagination and uh, a very British sense of humor, so I, I do build a lot of, you know, my satirical sense of humor into my stories as well. Uh, now,
1: as, yeah. uh, as a well, Canadian author, uh, with
2: a British sense
1: of humor, it, it, it almost fits into the Canadian culture, though.
2: It does to a point, but I would argue that British sense of humor and Canadian sense of humor is very different. I find Canadians not to be very sarcastic, whereas Britain thrives on sarcasm. So I I do remember trying to communicate with people when I came over here and I'd make a joke and they'd think I was offended, but I was just being sarcastic. And it took a lot of explaining that was unnecessary, whereas in England, they would just get it and be okay with
1: it. See, my stepfather used to tell me that sarcasm was the lowest form of intelligence. And he did that for most of my life until I turned around one day and said, "Are you speaking from experience?" And he (laughs) never said it again.
2: (laughs) I've always heard that that sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. Like that's impossible. Like well, Monty Python was built on sarcasm, and they're hilarious. Oh
1: well, yeah, and and well, Benny Hill's got a lot of it too. Oh
2: yeah, and the two
1: Ronnies, and I mean, we can go on and on all day.
2: only fools and horses and every, yeah there's a lot you know, of stuff to on, on the buses uh, I, oh that's going way back <laughs> i this is what i grew up with that's insane why did you grow up with so much british tv i mean i don't i've never heard anybody mention on the buses since my granddad passed away so okay i'm not that old <laughs> <laughs> i think <laughs> how old was your granddad
1: uh, he was in his <laughs> 80s you, you did, you're not there yet. <laughs> okay good Whew, i feel it some days a uh, oh, Panzer, Potzer, or planster which do you which do you primarily adhere to in your writing
2: yeah i wanted to ask you about this question because i mean i talk about pants pants versus plotters all the time what's the plan what's a plantster what's a plan a, a
1: planster is somebody who has an idea a loosely based idea and then runs with it
2: okay so there's a little bit of planning involved but for the most Not part yeah okay All right. Uh, I'm a plotter, like 100%. I was not. I was a pantser. When I started writing Death, the Devil, and the Goldfish, that novel took me six years to write because I simply, I I, I had an idea, but I didn't have, you know, character arcs or, you know, an axe structure or how it was going to end or anything like that. So it took a long time to piece that thing together. Uh, I learned after that experience, I started to sharpen my craft and I started what I now teach. Through the writing school I run is, uh, is story planning. I teach a lot of story planning because now I can write a book in five months. I take three weeks, I plan it all out. I do all the all the plotting pieces, character arcs, all the act structure, chapter breakdown, the lot, and I make sure it fits you know hits all the check marks that I want it to hit, and then i I can just simply sit down and write for five months and finish a novel. Not something I could have done ten years or you know fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, but uh, so i 'm very firmly in the uh the plotting camp these days
1: yeah okay i th- i see the
2: importance for it but i also see the the freedom in not having that oh i've i've argued this with students many a time it's, I, and i i don't disparage them i agree if it's the only if it's the way that you create and you write i am not a person to tell you that you should or should not do it that way i can yeah. only share my experience as far as productivity and and you know being a completionist and my own uh, work ethic when it comes to writing and plotting is what works for me definitely with all right
1: so that being said you said you started off as a as um, a uh, pantser and then you learned the plotter right yeah so do you think that's um possible for just about anybody they could oh. be one way and learn a different if it's you know, taught right maybe or
2: i don't know if you'd asked me uh five years ago i would have said yeah anybody should be able to learn it but after teaching Several hundred students novel writing. I don't know, because there are some that simply just cannot put themselves in the mindset to have the entire thing planned out to write it. They have to, in their own words, let their characters find their own way through the story. And that comes with, you know, being a or as a writer. I, I can't comprehend it. Maybe I'm, I think I'm, maybe I have control issues. <laughs> that, that's why it's, uh, I have to plan it out the way I do. But, so uh, that
1: being said, again, then, I mean, a lot of people, and including myself, I go to places like YouTube and I watch videos about how to write this or how to write that. There could be a level of confusion involved because you're getting too much input and you're trying to do it all, you know, jumbled.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, um, so maybe if like with your school, if somebody came into your school or I guess it's an online thing, right? Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Uh mm-hmm. So if somebody joins your school and they want to earnestly pursue what they're learning from you, they're probably going to find one straight path for themselves instead of finding 10, 12 different videos of different people saying, no, do it this way. No, do it that way.
2: And there's less yeah. conflict for them. Yeah. I started, I started teaching novel writing before, we we launched wordsmith academy so i was teaching it for 2 years before we actually kind of formalized it put it into an online school uh and uh, the reason i even wrote the novel writing course in the first place was simply for people to get out their own way in the beginning like i said you you don't know what you don't know and it doesn't have to be an overly complicated process to you know structure a story but if you don't know how to do it you simply don't know how to do it until someone kind of lays it out in you know layman's terms and of course i mean there's you can layer it. So, I mean, I teach story planning and story planning is one of the first classes I teach in any novel writing course that I do these days. And, you know, it covers the main points from ground up, the genre, the, um, you know, the perspective and then going into the act structure and the idea and building that out into a pitch and then, you know, keep building on it so that you have have a blueprint to work off. But then, of course, you can layer things on top. You can you can layer character development. You can layer uh, the hero's journey if you're writing, you know, genre fiction. Like, there's all kinds of things you can do to elevate that plan. But you only elevate it as much as you feel you need to to actually be confident to sit down and write the story, so that you know where you're going with it. So it's different for everybody, I think.
1: I would have to say that for myself, I have great idea beginnings and great, uh, you know. Ends to these stories, it's that middle ground that I get lost in, and I would imagine that a lot of people fall into that category where they've got the idea for the beginning, they got the idea for the end, they just can't connect it in the middle.
2: Yeah, I think that's a common problem. I I, I think it comes in different forms. I think a lot of people have issues when it comes to they have a great idea and they know how they want to start, but they don't know where they go from there, and they might not know how it ends. Uh, whenever they actually think about it, they know the start, then they probably know the problem they're presenting to. You know, in their story, and you know, logically, they can probably find a solution for it. And then, of course, then it does come down to your issues, you know, figure out what the middle is all about. And the middle is all simply about conflict, 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 conflict. So I always call it act two is the time when, you know, you make matters worse. It's where all (laughs) things go wrong. uh, Because that's what you want. That's how you progress the story. You have your antagonist messing stuff up and your protagonist figuring stuff out that you've got to build to that that point. So I understand the the issues around that. And Act 2 is always one of the hardest ones to write.
1: Would you agree with or disagree with this then? When people write, they're usually writing for themselves and not having the reader in mind.
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Hmm. I always write with the reader in mind. So is that something you have to... Train yourself in then I think it, my start was not in novel writing. my start was in screenwriting. it's what I went to film school for was to write for film and television, and that was quite literally my dream from you know age twelve to when I went to film school at nineteen uh Now, when you're learning screenwriting, you are quite literally learning it from a visual standpoint. Yeah. you're learning to visualize you can only write what the audience will see, so I think that. That transpired, or when I switched to novel writing, you can clearly saw, see it in *Death of Down the Goldfish*. It's heavily dialogue-driven, and um, the the uh, this descriptive narrative that's in the background is based around the visuals that, so the reader can properly see where you know where the story is taking place. So I think that's a that was a natural switch for me, but I think it is a learned thing. I think it's something that you have to consider because you can write for yourself. I do know a lot of people who simply do write for themselves. But I think if you want to be a published author with the goal of building a readership, I you think you have to write with the reader in mind. So what I'm hearing from you then is
1: everybody needs to take screenwriting first.
2: Screen- it novel writing. It would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I, I feel that was a leg up for me. It did help. It taught me all the storytelling principles. It taught, it taught me act structure really well because screenplays are, screenplays are very, very structured. Um, and it taught me that visual piece. I'm um, dialogue. Dialogue was is huge.
1: Uh, I was uh, I was always a poetry writer. I started writing poetry, and that was all I ever wrote for about forty years. And then, um, you know, via Facebook, I got into a couple of writing groups, and then I started my own writing group. And there were contests that people were posting, so you know, short stories and stuff like that. So I took mm-hmm. a, f- a few free online short story writing c- courses. And then I would start submitting, you know, my short stories to these contests, uh, uh, Furious Fiction being one of them out of Australia. Um, you know, 500 words in 55 hours, blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah, yeah. And they give, anyway. Uh, but I I reached out to, you know, some of these online courses. But I found one uh, on storytelling from uh, Pixar in a box. Have you heard of that one? I have heard of that, yeah. So I took that, and I I learned so much from that. Yeah, um, and and I can now. Um, you know, this is going to be funny coming from a, a visually impaired guy, but it's easier for me to visualize the story
2: because of that course. That's interesting. I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting from the standpoint that, uh, especially, I mean, take my own children for example. I did not birth any readers. It never happened. <laughs> None of my kids are readers. They don't like reading. They don't. They don't love reading. And part of it is because they have a real trouble visualizing when they read. They can read the words, but they're concentrating so much on the words that they can't actually visualize what's happening in the story. So, I, I think that visual piece is. I mean, and that mean, just means that they can absorb media that way. They can absorb it through comic books. They can absorb it through TV or movie or whatever. That's totally fine. Um, but as a writer, I think that visual piece is really. Important. I know a lot of people, I've had a lot of students struggle with uh, narrative description, and I always point them to Anne Rice. Anne Rice is one of the, go, well, always goes over the top with narrative description. But beautiful, beautiful prose, almost poetic in a lot of ways. Like she's, when she describes something, she describes the hell out of it. And it's amazing and beautiful and gorgeous. I'm not saying everybody should do that. But I find the fact that you can entrench yourself in, you know, her work in that way. I always point students that way because I'm like, try that, read that and see how that feels. You don't have to do that. You have to do like a small percentage of that. And if you can do that, then your, your visually, your, your visual descriptions are going to be so much stronger.
1: Yeah. I happen to be an Anne Rice fan too, though. But uh, on the same note though, like take somebody like Stephen King, for example, who is very detail oriented. Mm -hmm. I can't read his books. I can't.
2: Hey, yeah, we're kindred spirits, Randy. I, <laughs> yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with Stephen King. And I talk about this in classes all the time and at schools. I should love him. I like horror. I, I, I like his, the movies based on his books. Mm-hmm. I hate his books. It is such a struggle to get through them. And I've tried and I've tried. The Shining was the only one I was like, oh, okay, that was all right. But yeah. I would never reread it either. Like it's never something I would ever go back to. It still leaves kind of an icky taste in my mouth. But I, I love the movies they, they, they make. Now, movies. Here's a funny thing, though. And
1: I just finished saying I can't get into the detail and stuff. But my favorite Stephen King book is The Stand.
2: That's a really long one, too. Though, it's right? a really long
1: one and very detailed. Huh. But it was it was a story that I really, really
2: enjoyed. But, but what spoke to you about that particular story? Like, what resonated with you? Uh,
1: just, you know, when I was reading it, I could see that happening in our world. And it it resonated with like, oh, yeah, this is similar. This is similar. And now, especially in the last two years, you're looking at it going, wait a sec. Did he know something back then? You know, Um, but it was just it was just one of those books that I couldn't put down.
2: Moon, moon. But anyway. (laughs) No, no disparagement to Mr. King. He's fantastic and has a huge fan base.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And please, no, no hate mail. How did you (laughs) come? How did you come to choose the genre uh, you write in, or do you feel that it chose you?
2: Uh, well, there's a tricky part. I don't write in any one genre, so <laughs> I never had to choose. Uh, I've written, I mean, out of published works, I have urban fantasy, I have urban satirical fantasy, I have sci, uh, spy thriller, which is completely outside of my usual genres, I have paranormal uh, fantasy, and more recently i have a horror satirical fantasy which has yet to be released so i i'm kind of a bit all over the map i mean i guess i do edge more towards fantasy um, so what
1: did you do thumb
2: through an encyclopedia of writing genres and just, just, oh, just i'll do this yeah, one today and i'll do that I, one this year i just pointed to whatever i wanted uh, i i come from a, um i guess a love of genre, genre fiction in general and i think like it comes mostly from movies first and then it kind of transpired into books uh because i always i'm a i was the film school student i was such an odd one out i was the film school student who was not the pretentious filmmaker who couldn't give a crap about indie filmmaking i liked the big blockbuster popcorn flick summer movies like i the big fancy epics the superhero stuff like i ate all that up Uh and all the cool 80s action movies and stuff was what i grew up with so I think it was a logical stepping stone for me to be drawn to fantasy of somebody who grew up watching all the old Sinbad movies and, <sighs> Sinbad. and Jason the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, like the original one, not the stupid remake with Liam Neeson, like the actual, you know, the original no, I, one.
1: I, I saw them all in theater.
2: That That's very cool. I, I might have seen a few of them when they were redone in theater, but I, I mostly watched them on TV back in the day. So I think that's kind of where that kind of birthed. Horror was not a big part of my upbringing because my parents never really let me watch it. But then I would just random left field, like my dad would sit me down and we'd watch Gremlins when I was like really young, and I spent like two years thinking there was one living under my bed. Uh, <laughs> or he'd like record the Lost Boys off of like late night TV and said, I-, "I recorded this vampire movie. It's really good." I'm like, "Okay." And then I would spend you know days terrified. <laughs> you said bedtime movie? Yeah, late <laughs> night Yeah, bedtime movie. Exactly. And, like it was just um... so uh, it just all kind of came from that which I think was pushed a little bit by my dad because he always liked those kinds of big sweeping epic blockbuster movies too and so it kind of came a natural thing when I started reading I think one of the first adult novels that I read was the Jurassic Park because I kind of switched out of young adult books really quickly and moved into adult books and Jurassic Park was such a huge eye-opener for me Mm. Uh, when I read it I think it was about 10 or 12 or something and then it just went from there. Then I just started devouring, you know, fantasy and, you know, Wheel of Time and Game of Thrones when it came out and like all those kind of things. So fantasy came, is is my favorite genre to write in. Um, it's my favorite genre to read. But I, I like to dabble. I like, you know, I like the concept of sci-fi because there's so much you can do with it. And well, there's I so like many it.
1: places you can go with because there's so many different genres.
2: Why, 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 why just want? Yeah, I've never understood authors who always just limit themselves to one. I mean, I, I guess I edge, I obviously edge more towards fantasy than anything else. And I, I can't help but put satire in. I tried writing a serious horror novel once and they quickly devolved into a middle grade, um, satirical fantasy. Uh, so it's, I don't have the ability to write serious as far as I can tell. Um, but fantasy is probably the genre that that sandbox is the one that I love to play in.
1: So going back to, uh, we were talking about movies and stuff like that. Why do you suppose movies can never quite capture the book?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. It's, it's not that they can't. I think there are some movies that do the book relative justice. Give me but an I, example. I think, because it's such a tough, a tough <laughs> one, I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was for the book it was based on ended mm-hmm. up being quite a good movie because that book should be impossible to turn into a movie. Um, True. It just, yeah. it doesn't lend it to it. But I thought the movie version that they did was quite good. Uh, some Grisham stuff, like I think the client and the firm, I think both are, you know, good books, but the movies were really good. Like I thought they did very impressive work. So I think there are ways. I, I, now, take Jurassic Park, as we already mentioned it. Jurassic Park movie is great. Jurassic Park mm-hmm. book is really great, but there's no chance they could have taken everything from the book and fit it into the movie. It mm-hmm. was it would be too much. So some of the best parts of the Jurassic Park of the book never made it into the movie, but they did end up putting it into the third movie. For example, like there's a whole thing with the atrium and the pterodactyls that was that was in the book and was such an amazing chapter, it was never in the movie, but they built it into the third one. I just don't think books. Try, uh, that's why. Turning a book into a TV show these days, way more desirable, I imagine, for an author, for, you know, anybody who is a fan of a book, because then you have a long form story arc to play with. Mm-hmm. Turn a novel into a two hour, two and a half hour movie, you're going to lose something. You, you simply can't keep, you can't be faithful to the story. But with a TV show, you can.
1: I grew up a big Ian Fleming, James Bond reading fan. Oh, i bet all of them. So have I, over and over again. And, um, I, I, to the point that if it wasn't based on an Ian Fleming book, I wouldn't watch the movie. I mean, how many Bond movies are there now? 23, 24? 20, 25, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, I haven't seen the newest one yet. So, but, uh, I mean, I've watched every one of them, but my, my dedication is to the Ian Fleming characters from his books not you know anything that was written by somebody else after his death and after his last story now I hear that they want to do a a Colonel's son which is loosely based on Ian Fleming's life and it's pre James Bond as we know Mm -hmm. so uh, that might be an interesting thing but um, yeah that character there was something about him um, and so like the, the latest incarnation with Daniel Craig I think the ones that were based on the books, like Casino
2: Royale, was very close to the book. I agree. I, I'm, I'm a lot, I mean, British. I'm a long time James Bond fan. And I, I read, I didn't read the Fleming novels until probably about six years ago. And I, I just read, I went through them all. I read them all and read all the short stories. Like they were fantastic. Having grown up with all those movies and loving all those movies, it was kind of interesting to see that they, almost none of them, Daniel Craig really followed the actual stories that were in the books. There's a couple that you know they took bits and pieces out of it, yeah. But realistically, they they weren't. They were based on the character. They were based on um, you know maybe and that's what it says right. The it's villain. based on the character. It, it's based on yeah. So which is fine. So when Casino Royale, Royale came out, I was like, holy! They were so close with this one, and yeah. that did launch a new era of that character, which was. More to more Ian Fleming's Bond than any other Bond who had come close, come near. Sean Connery was a little close until they they started turning a little campy and the gadgets and all that kind of stuff came into it. Yeah, Craig's Bond was probably the one of the the better ones. Uh, well, it was one of the best Bonds for sure. But I, yeah, absolutely it, agree. But you're right. I mean, generally those books obviously didn't. I mean, maybe they didn't. Actually, I can't think of a reason why they wouldn't have been because the books didn't have the gadgetry. They didn't have, they just had pure spy thriller intrigue, you know, a smattering of racism and sexism. But other than that, they. Couldn't. there was a lot left to the imagination though. There was, I suppose, because they weren't massively long novels. No. He was, he wasn't known for his, you know, long, now, long ride.
1: Being off. a sighted person, you might actually enjoy this little tidbit. If you ever find yourself going to a movie theater again, for the sake of the experience, ask if if they can set you up with their video
2: description. What oh, I'm going to movie tonight, so please tell me.
1: <laughs> okay, so you you go in and just say, "Listen, can I get your video description?" They will set you up with a, a monitor and a set of headphones, and you'll listen to the movie. And there's there's details given in in the 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 audio track that you're listening
2: to that you, nine times out of ten you will not up visually that's interesting so is that for visual impaired is that the yeah the point of those? that's yep. really cool uh, yeah, it is no very idea.
1: cool and I highly <laughs> recommend it to anybody who's listening because it is truly a, a different experience because again there's so much going on visually with the eyes that you can't get it all but the video description of what's going on you get
2: it that's interesting, because I do find that more and more, especially with the movies that I, that I really enjoy, like the big action movies, especially the superhero movies. There's so much happening mm-hmm. that it always takes a repeat viewing to be like, oh, because and I always feel so much more relaxed during the second viewing because I'm like, OK, I've already seen, you know, all the surface level. Now I can just relax and enjoy and watch and get it. I, it happened with the, the Batman. I watched it twice over the course of like five days. And the first time I was just watching, you know, I was so on edge trying to catch everything. Yeah. But then when I watched it the second time, I was like, this is a really great movie to just sit and watch. Now I've got that part out of the way.
1: Well, now going to a movie theater and, and listening to it with video description, you'll the save yourself some money because you won't have to go back to watch it. Oh,
2: uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. But then I'll miss the popcorn, Randy. I mean, don't, well, you know, the
1: theaters give
2: popcorn. up one for the other. Right. Yeah, that's true.
1: No, but it it is a really, really good experience what is the hardest thing you've ever
2: had to or tried to write every book is hard in its own way but a few years ago probably about six years ago uh, my agent sat down with or my then agent uh, we've since I've since switched representation but he sat down with an editor from Tor for lunch and they got into a discussion about uh, Beowulf and how there is no good modern depiction of the story of Beowulf, and then they started talking about what if it was a middle grade novel, and what it was from the point of view of the monster, and all these different things kind of got batted around. And then he called me when he got to the office and said, "Hey, I had this crazy conversation. So would you be interested in writing this story on spec? And if they don't pick it up, you've you know you've got a novel to sell." So so we talked about it for a little while, and I had a meeting with the editor from Tor, and we discussed kind of the concepts. And so I sat down and plotted out a, um, a novel base that was a middle grade. Gothic fantasy uh, or upper middle grade, I suppose, uh, that centered around Grendel, the monster, but in modern times, as he would be accepted as, you know, this creature or this, you know, giant oversized person or however that was going to be. And then loosely based the structure around the events of Beowulf, but in a modern setting in a high school with murders, with, you know, a dragon living in the nearby mine and <laughs> his stepmother being this person, but his real mother being a witch and all this kind of fun fantasy. I, so I, that's probably the most challenging thing that I've written, because trying to edge it into something that is really, really old, for <laughs> one thing, and modernizing it to make it relatable for a modern audience, while maintaining some of the principles but obviously you know flip it on its head with the monster kind of being the hero of the story uh really challenging but such a fun project to write uh torrent didn't pick it up in the end so it's still out there uh set to go to market hopefully this year but um it's uh it was an interesting definitely an interesting story to to put together and i really like that juxtaposition of the the monster and everybody's preconceived notions about him and that you know don't not judging a book by its cover concept it was just it was really fun to put together it's slightly gruesome because it was it's fairly dark no yeah it was a little dark there's a little some little darkness going on was, i don't it was, it was see of, how it couldn't be there's a lot of questioning as to whether he eats people or not <laughs> and that goes on through the, through again the there's some things that are just better left to the imagination That's true, that's
1: true, Do you have any one particular writing process? How many did you experiment with or you found the one that you currently do? Does
2: that make sense? Yeah, it was a bit of trial and error because like I said, that first novel was panzer. So I was, I'd write, you know, pretty dedicated for a couple months and then I forget about it for three months. And then I go back and forget what I'd written. And then I, so that's why six years is why it took to write that. (laughs) After I finished that, and I actually kind of sat down and thought, okay. And I, I actually immediately sat down because I finished that and I started trying to, you know, sending the queries out doing the whole traditional publishing route. Uh, I sat down and started writing the sequel and I was like, what am I doing? It's like, I don't even know, this book's going to get picked up. So then I, I started to think about what I really wanted to write. And there was a certain point in my life, I'd just been divorced so I was writing from a bit of a darker standpoint, and I've been watching a lot of Disney movies with my kids, and uh, I... <laughs> if you don't get dark from that... Well, um... that, can play, that can play havoc with <laughs> <through> your imagination. <laughs> uh, so I started writing stiltskin because it was from... I wanted kind of a, a funny, but, you know, a little bit darker take on fairy tales. So, and and the original fairy tales, not the disney Fight happily ever after ones. So I I sat down and and started to plot that out. And that's kind of where I started the story planning piece. Cause then I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to incorporate all these characters and these stories and, you know, make them fit cohesively into this, into this book. uh, I'm going to need to actually plan it out a little better than what I did the last one. So out of necessity, I sat down and planned that. For the most part, it was mostly complete in my brain when I actually started writing it. And it took me uh, just over a year, I think, to write that. So then I felt like I was actually on to something. So when I finished that and uh, my kids were getting to an age where they did want to read something I had written, they still never did because not readers. Then I started to think about, okay, well, what if I switch, you know, my age group? So I'd written something that was mostly for uh, young adults, but then my agent recommended, you know how this is a middle grade story. Like we need to downgrade this kid to be, I think he started out at 16 and he ended up being 13. Okay. So when I sat down to plan out that story, then I, it was more intricate. I think it's the first time I did like the three week story planning uh, and I kind of formulated my only way to do it. And that's the same process that I've used again and again since then, because that's what allows me to write in, you know, a novel in five to six months and be comfortable that I did produce, you know, a pretty decent first draft. And then of course, editing and everything else that goes with it. But um, yeah, so I think that's kind of, kind of the process that I went with. And it is, fairly made up of that three-week story planning it's obviously fluid it changes throughout I'll have different ideas mm-hmm. but once I have that and sit down and write if I'm especially if I'm writing to a deadline which was mostly the case when I was writing uh, in five to six month increments uh, I would throughout the day either in the shower or while driving because those were my brainless times uh, I would plan out what I was going to write at night because I could only write at night because of children and dogs and family and work and everything Uh, So during the day, during those mindless times, I would put myself in a position where I could think intentionally about the story I was writing and what I was going to write next. And then at night, I would sit down, I would write a page, two pages, a chapter, whatever kind of free flowed. And that's how I would write for five to six months until the book was finished. And then I'd go into editing mode. So that's kind of been my process. And it's still my process now. Uh, I'm a little more scattered these days, I think, because I'm not actually writing deadlines for any particular publisher at this point but it still works for you uh but the process still works so uh, it's so well, you
1: brought up stiltskin
2: yes. now uh, out of all the fables and fairy
1: tales out there why that one
2: Rumpelstiltskin is one of the oldest fairy tales it's not the oldest but it definitely predates uh, a lot of the other ones a lot of the sleeping beauties and Hansel and Gretels and such um Rumpelstiltskin is just a wonderful villain uh but mainly, he, he kind of struck me as um Almost a, you know, a Joker character to Batman. He's, he's an agent of chaos. He doesn't, he's not really working towards anything specific. He's just purely evil and, you know, really wants bad things to happen to people to his own end. So I thought he was kind of a nice little villain, although he isn't the main villain of the story while it is centered around, that first book is centered around the pursuit of yeah. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin, the actual villain is the, the Mad Hatter, which I also thought was another interesting character study of, you know, somebody who's crazy for the sake of being crazy. <laughs> so it, it's, yeah, I think that's kind of why I, I wanted him as the first book. It is supposed to be a, you know, a four book series uh, that I had sketched out. I just haven't got to finishing it to this point. So you've got some work ahead. I got a lot of work. If I had all the time in the world, I would <laughs> just happily sit down and write and write and write.
1: What about, and I didn't even plan for this, but what about collaborations? Have you ever done collaborations
2: with anybody or would you consider collaborations with other people? I haven't until recently. Being a little bit controlling with my own work, I haven't done a ton of collaboratory work. Um, I've done, a bit part of anthologies, but that's not really the same thing. No, no. Most recently, and we are talking recent as in weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> I have two, two collaborative works uh, on the go. So what I didn't name in my works in progress uh, is I have, I have a nonfiction book, which is new for me. I, I don't generally write nonfiction, but I've had a few nonfiction proposals that i put together in areas that interest me. But one that completely fell on my lap uh, by accident, uh, I do professional writing on the side. So copywriting for uh, businesses and a few different clients on a regular basis. And through one of them, I met this gentleman called uh, Gaurav Shindi, who is um, East Indian Canadian, who is uh, only one of two uh, persons of color who are entering the Golden Globe race, which is a solo sail around the world, leaving oh, France wow. in September. Runs for, takes them about 250 days. They sail by themselves in, their, in a craft and they only have to, they're only allowed to use technology that was available in 1968. So it's a remarkably dangerous, insane race. Uh So I met Garv and I learned about his upbringing, and he's got a wonderful, amazing backstory as to how he became this um, remarkable sailor um, and his bid to enter the Golden Globe race, which ran in 1968, which wasn't held again until four years ago, because in that original race, nine people went out, one came back. The rest got lost, retired during the race, and one person committed suicide, so as a consequence, they didn't run it again. Four years ago, they on the 50th anniversary, they ran it again. 30 participants raised around the world i think i don't know how many finished but it's 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 really it's not many because in total i believe there's only seven people who have ever circumnavigated around the globe solo yeah. which is less than you know people we put on into space <laughs> so it's um it's quite a crazy undertaking anyway so i met garv and we started talking about a story and his story because it was so interesting And we talked about you know uh, co-authoring a book about running up to the race his time during the race uh, and then you know hopefully he complete at least completes um so that's fingers crossed crossed. whether he doesn't it doesn't it's still an interesting story but that's a co-author project that i currently have that's um going to go to market here really quick because he literally cast off from halifax in like a month and a little bit um so You know that that is approaching, and then the other one is a comic book project. I was approached by a comic book writer to uh, co co co-author a comic book series, a four issue comic book series. Uh, So I'm currently working on the story structure with him to put that together.
1: I just recently did an interview, actually um, season two, episode one and two is it's a two parter with um, a couple of ladies who uh, founded created their own web comic, and Mm. so that that was an interesting interview. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's kind of cool. What advice would you give someone who is just starting their writing journey?
2: Um, Twofold. Uh, I would say, make sure that you're writing. Writing is one of the hardest things for writers. It would appear. People procrastinate. People suffer from imposter syndrome. They get discouraged. They lose their way. They get writer's block. The only way you finish anything or you get better at writing is by writing. So my, the, Main piece of advice I always give to people is to keep writing. And especially young people, like write like there's no tomorrow because the more content you can amass, the more work you have, the better chance you have of succeeding in this industry because it isn't, it isn't an industry akin to when To Kill a Mockingbird came out where you can write one book and that book is going to keep you going for the rest of your life. It's a long game now based on quality and quantity in which you have to have multiple works to actually be a successful author in today's day and age. So you so, can't
1: be a, a Harper. What was her name? Uh, Harper Lee. Harper Lee, just one and one and done.
2: Doesn't work that way anymore. It's not that that world is long past. Well, uh, that is if
1: you know. I mean, if, if you're happy with that, but I mean, any publishing company wouldn't be happy
2: with that. For not sure. anymore. No, yeah. I mean, even well, how many more many years later they did sequelize <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. Just you know, in her last years of life, they made her write a sequel. Yeah. which I think is a little cruel. Uh, and she didn't need to. She could have gone out on top. Yeah, The sequel wasn't very well received, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, which kind of tarnished
2: her credibility, I guess, to a certain degree. Yeah, I felt sorry for her. That was a, that was a shame. But, okay, uh, so that's the first part. What's the second part? The second part is the the educational piece that we talked about. I believe people need to learn to write properly. I think it's important that people do, you know, Keep learning more. I still, every time I work with an editor, I learn new stuff, uh, that I never knew before. And that has happened every single time I've worked with an editor. It's always been a wonderful experience where I've learned something and become a better writer as a consequence. So you want to network. You want to talk to other writers. You want to listen to podcasts such as this because it's all insightful information that helps you become a better writer. So however you choose to educate yourself, and I'm not saying you'll go to school for it. I'm just saying take the time to learn the craft. you'll be a better writer for it
1: um but have you seen the state of the english language today and how it's being used by the younger generation
2: yo i I do it's real i talk in schools all the time and it's a it's a real pet peeve of mine that that you your thing is or your your thing is going to drive me nuts
1: well never mind that but we're going back to pictographs like hieroglyphics
2: (laughs) it's true (laughs) you know it's a good point it's not a good state of things it's definitely not it must drive teachers crazy. It, you know, what? it's it's hard to say because in my brain, I always think that we were so much more disciplined. I sound like an old person, but it was so much more disciplined when we went to school, and we're so much more diligent with finishing things and writing things and the creativity that was there. And we always kind of—I find a lot of adults really crap on kids these days because they don't believe they're creative, or they don't believe because they, you know, they stare at their small screens or you know they they play video games, but they're creative in other avenues. I think it's just changed. We only had a certain amount of ways we could be creative we were yeah. i think we were we were limited now there is you know a ton of different uh outlets for creativity that we simply didn't have access to. So I don't think that kids are less creative; I think they're creative in different ways. The kids who are creative writers are still really creative writers. I run workshops in schools all the time and some of the stories that come out of it are just absolutely amazing that I couldn't have thought of because there's always a couple kids in that class who can drive a story like nobody's business. And so it gives me gives me faith. And the other kids are creating in their own ways. Are they creating social media posts? Are they creating TikTok? Do I get it now? But they do it. <laughs> and that's their creative outlet. Or they're building stuff in Minecraft. Or are they, you know, building stuff in sandboxes and video games or like i don't pretend to understand it but it takes creativity to do those things
1: i was in costco about two weeks ago and uh, the person i was with wanted to do a lot of running around and because of my visual impairment i really can't keep up with him you know anyway Mm -hmm. so i just stayed in 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 place where i was and i i heard the shopping cart come around the corner and it was a mom and child and the child was about maybe five four five six years old maybe and uh, they come around the corner and they, and, you know, I could hear them. And then the child saw, I guess they were in front of a garbage bag display. And, you know, the kid said, hey, mommy, garbage bags. And he started making up a song on the spot about the garbage <laughs> bags. And I just, it touched my heart. It was like, this is fantastic. So when they started to go by me, I leaned into him as he went by. I said, that song was beautiful. Never stop. Singing, and yeah. mom just—I mom looked at me. I do have a little bit of vision, so—but mom looked at me, smiled. They kept walking away, and the kid said, "Hey, mommy, what did that man say?" And she said, "Don't stop singing." And I agree with him. That's awesome. You know, um, that touches my heart. That tells me that there's still hope. There is hope there when, there's, when there's when there's children like that, and as long as nobody's trying to take that away from them, the future is bright. We can only hope. We're going to move on to part two right now, which I call shameless bugging because this is what we need to do with our, with our stuff anyway. So for those listening, I'm now going to ask Andrew about his stuff. So Andrew, question number one, well, and you've already covered this, but I know that there's other things uh, which you still haven't uh, talked about. So again, what do you currently have in publication and uh, plug your most recent and anything else
2: okay so i'm in a bit of a weird state of flux with my book work uh in that i switched literary representation just before christmas and i did take back some rights to certain books that i have so here in all the wrong places is an upper middle grade fantasy uh, paranormal fantasy series uh which if you love werewolves and you know things that like go bump in the night it's a perfect series for you to read uh it's a three book series currently there's a fourth book pending That series is a book, is a series that I have taken the rights back. Uh, It is still available currently on Amazon and wherever books are sold, um, but it probably won't be by the end of this year. It'll probably get republished elsewhere, and I don't know where that's going to be yet. If you have especially uh, a young uh, boy or girl who's likes, you know, paranormal fantasy and kind of like some of the scarier elements of um, that genre, that'd be a good book series. Uh, Death to Devilly Goldfish and Stiltskin are both out there and available. Uh, Death to Devilly Goldfish was my first ever novel that I released, published in 2012, republished in 2020 with a new publisher, new cover, which is awesome. Um, and that one is still out there living in the world. And that's the one that's getting sequelized right now. So I am, it's a very strange, crazy little tale from the beginnings of my writing career based on an evil cat that I once owned. Uh, who We've is all now all dead? We all on strange cats. I mean, he's dead now, but well, he should be. I mean, it's twenty something years ago, <laughs> he should definitely be dead by now. Uh, it's and one if of he's my favorite not, stories. we just proved our point. We really did. <laughs> They're purely evil. Uh, and then Stillskin is the other one that's currently out there in the world. uh Stilskin is, is with the same publisher as Death the Demon and the Goldfish, uh, but Stillskin is the accumulation of my love of fairy tales, uh, and it's wonderful and twisted and dark and hilarious and follows the journey of the Mad Hatter's son as he pursues the evil dwarf from stiltskin across our world and the fairy tale world that lives just behind ours. And as an offshoot to that, releasing this week, uh, which is you know, obviously in the past from this the release of the podcast, uh, is a short collection of horrible fairy tales uh, that I wrote years ago as a kind of, like kind of an accompaniment piece to Stiltskin because it's fairy tales from that particular world. Uh, and they're, you know, twisted and dark and funny and uh there's six of them uh, and that book is now available uh on amazon and what was it called again a short collection of horrible fairy tales i like it it's wonderfully twisted and fun
1: (laughs) do you presently have anything you're working on and we've discussed that already and how close is it to being completed so you've mentioned that earlier but do you want to go back and just retouch that a bit
2: Yes, uh, the, the Search for the Sacred Goldfish, which is the sequel to Death, the Devil and the Goldfish is hopefully going to be completed this year. Probably my guess is it won't be published until next year. Uh, but that will likely be my next full, uh, full novel that gets published. Uh, I have a lot of work going to market this year because Herald on Places will go back out into the world, hopefully. But I also have The Terrible Tale of Jonathan Randall, which will hopefully go to market and The Fate of Freddie Mitchell. Uh, which is a different middle grade series that was previously contracted but never released by a publisher. So we're going to be putting that out for sale. So I got stuff that's already finished that's going to head on to the world. Before we started this whole interview process,
1: you had mentioned that you tried self-publishing uh, something that's coming out, right?
2: Which one was that? So the the a Short Collection of Horrible fairy tales is what that's I smart. self-published. Um, okay. I've never done self-publishing. I've always, I was fortunate to be traditionally published. Uh, through a publisher and then I met my literature agent and then he kind of drove my stories from there and then I switched to a new agent and she is driving my stories from this point onwards but self-publishing because it is such a big industry and so many people subscribe to it I, I've never done it because I didn't have to do it but I always I was always very curious and because I teach novel writing and the different aspects of publishing I really kind of wanted to educate myself on how to properly self-publish something
1: and how is that uh, process
2: for you ridiculously simple. So I can definitely understand why so many people are drawn to it. I can also see why there's so much junk flooding the literary world as well because it's so easy. Uh, it took me probably three hours to reformat this. I mean, it's a, it's only short. So it's only a thirty-something page book, but it took me only three hours to reformat and put it into the Kindle Creator program, and then you know move some stuff around, you know write the extra pieces that I needed to put my cover on it, and boom. I hit publish and I got an email at three o'clock this morning saying, hey, we publish your, your work. That is how easy it is. So the process is very wonderfully simple.
1: And this is going to be a loaded question and it might get me a lot of hate mail. I love you all, but please don't. Do you suppose that a lot of people have taken the route of self-publishing because they don't have faith in their talent or they don't want to have to put up with the other side of the writing industry, like, you know, editors and publishers and
2: I think it's multifaceted. I don't think there's a one I don't think there's a single answer for this question. I think Or does it boil down to I get more profits? I it, I think that's part of it too. I, I and I mean uh the Brandon Sanderson story that just came out. I mean yes, he's a best selling author anyways, but I mean that dude wrote what, raised forty one million dollars to publish his next book. That's wild. From a Kickstarter campaign. No one's ever done it before at least not to that extent how do i get involved in this <laughs> you, that's the problem you can't i discussed this at length with a few different people and it's like it's it could be a lightning in the ball scenario but he's got a whole team behind it marketing anyways besides that point i think people self-publish i think partially for the reason you said i think some people feel they they don't have enough faith in their own work so they self-publish well i'll just put it onto the world and see how it feels How how it does you know it's just just you know just testing the water a little bit and see how it goes I think a lot of people do it because they want quick. They want it done fast. We live in a world where content is received super quickly. And if you go through a traditional publisher, even when you sign with a publisher, you're probably looking at a year before your book gets released. Mm -hmm. I think people go self-publishing because of the ease of it and that they keep complete control. I think a lot of them suffer from imposter syndrome and don't believe that they deserve traditional publishing and agenting. I think there's a lot of different reasons people do it. Um, I think if... Self-publishing had been available when I was starting out. Because I mean I spent two years trying to get a publisher for Death of the Devil and the Goldfish and Stiltskin. And it it was two years. If I had this option, would I have stopped and self-published just because, you know, no one was picking up my stuff? Maybe. I have no I have no way of telling that. Uh I do think people need to give themselves enough credit because I always teach the pros and cons of traditional versus self. And I do advise students that you should always try traditional publishing first. What, what are you losing by not? Like if you've written the story and you don't want to, you know, push it onto the market super quick, why don't you give it a try? Because of the distribution, because of the editing services, because of the cover art, like it's all stuff that gets done for you without coming out of your own pocket. It's kind of nice that way.
1: <clears throat> that being said, though, people don't want to deal with the rejection letter.
2: That's true, but that's the sensitivity that I think people need to get over. If you work in a creative artistic space, you're going to be, you're going to have critics and you're going to have rejection. That's just, that's the way it's worked forever. Um, you know, if you put a book out into the world, you're going to get bad reviews because you cannot write a book that pleases everyone. Harry Potter has a crap ton of amazing reviews. It's got a whole bunch of negative reviews too. You can't write to please every audience. And do you think everybody loves Shakespeare? No, of course not. It's some some of this really freaking boring. <laughs> so you you can't you can't live that way. You have to be willing to accept rejection and criticism. They taught us like way early on in film school, and something I share with my own students all the time is that, you know, when it comes to critique and rejection, like you take whatever you think is, you know, useful, you dismiss the rest. No one knows your work like you know your work. So it's you're fully in control. You need you be assigned with a traditional publisher. If their editor is like, you know what, we should change this. You can argue the point. And if your point is logical and makes the story better, then you will win. But if your editor has good ideas, you should probably consider them. They're editors. They do do this for a living. So you kind of have to, you know, trust Is it a reasonable fear that
1: people would think that those editors that work for the publishing companies or whatever, that the story that you submitted soon becomes
2: not your story? Yeah, that's a possibility. I am somebody who has never been so attached to my story that I'm not willing to make changes to make it better. If somebody tried to change an element of my story that I didn't think personally would make it better, I would argue tooth and nail that I do not want to do that because I do not think it would work. And if that cost me a publishing contract or whatever, that is a hill I'm willing to die on if I truly feel passionate about it. But I've never been so passionate about my work that i haven't been able to see the pros of changing something if it'll benefit the story or the reader or the marketplace that's enough. my goal was always to be a successful author who can support himself through being an author so that's comes with you know having to make some changes especially when it comes down to film rights if you're going to sell film rights for your book you need to understand that your story will will not be yours (laughs) once those film rights are gone (laughs) Well, and I think we discussed that over the James Bond books. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't. It belongs to producers and other writers and directors and everybody else except you. Your opinion will matter the absolute least about your work.
1: So going back, and this was an unscheduled question. So I, I hate my mind sometimes because it just, you know. So you you've got uh, a, an agent, you've got representation, you've got a publisher, <laughs> blah blah blah. But would you ever pick up a, a, a nom de plume or a pseudonym and self-publish under a different name?
2: No, I, um, <laughs> hmm, let me think about this for a second. I don't think so. I I believe self-publishing has a value to traditionally published authors because I think you can do things like this short collection of horrible fairy tales, which is realistically a supporting piece for a novel I already have published. Okay, Like if someone likes this, they would probably be inclined to pick up Stiltskin because it's it's written in the same way. It's in the same world. It has, you know, creatures and characters that would feature in the main novel. So I think as marketing promotional pieces, I think that's kind of what I would angle self-publishing in. I partially did this because I have a spy thriller called Havelock that was very mishandled by a publisher back in the, you know, 2008, no, late in that, 2014, 15-ish that should have been one of my most marketable books ever because it was so commercial. And I was asked to write it under a pen name. And I was asked to write it under a female pen name because the protagonist was female and they didn't think that readers would accept a female protagonist written by a male, which now I see as ridiculous because I couldn't market it as myself. I couldn't access my own readership. I couldn't, I had to, you know, do it anonymously, which was ridiculous. So I partially did this self-publishing experiment here to kind of see if, is it worth me taking that book and, you know, self-publishing that, but under my name and, you know, seeing if it works. I don't know if I'd want to spend the time to reformat, you know, my 200 something page novel to self-publish, but I would consider it. I'm I'm not sold on it yet. And I'm curious to see how this does as my first little self-publishing project and what the results are. And if it's positive, then you know, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't mind putting the time in. But this is kind of my uh, me testing the water to see how it feels. So is that one
1: toe at a time, or are
2: they, are you just jumping in? I'm just doing the one toe. I generally the one toe, and then if it, you know, the warmer the water gets, maybe I'll, try, I'll dip it a little bit more into it. As long as, long as it's not more. boiling and you're enjoying it. Exactly. Then <laughs> that's then that's a problem. I'm just surrounded by cats, and it's, it'll just be. Oh, like... Man, all I'll
1: right. So is there? One of your books, which you are particularly more fond of than another.
2: And (laughs) what? Kicking my favorite baby. (laughs) Yeah. I get asked this in schools all the time. Like, what is your favorite book that you've written? It's, my answer is always the same. It's always the last book that I write. I don't, I mean, I I love everything that I've written because I'm really biased. And, you know, I'm not going to write something that I'm not going to enjoy reading. Uh, But every time I write something new, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my favorite thing that I've written. This is
1: the best ever.
2: Always, it's always that way. Like, I really, I mean, theoretically, I wrote this these fairy tales like, you know, a decade ago, but rereading them now and getting to go through and re edit them, I really like this. These stories, re- I'm sitting there laughing at my own stuff because over 10 years, I've forgotten it. <laughs> so I'm like, this is good. Who wrote this? I wrote this. You have
1: the memory this. of the goldfish. I really do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this book called The Fate of Freddie Mitchell, uh, which the publisher, like I said, picked up edited created the cover and then the publisher started to slowly shut down so I took the rights for it back because I wanted it to, I wanted to see the light of day that is the last novel that I theoretically I finished and it, that is currently my favorite novel it's funny it takes all the the story the, the storytelling style that I had in Death of and the Goldfish and Stiltskin which I kind of departed from when I did all Alderman Places and it it kind of brings it all back together, but still builds in those nice dark fantasy paranormal elements. But it's still kind of quirky and funny and satirical, and so that is currently my favorite thing. But the young adult heist book I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm really loving it. Like how it's coming together. So that will probably end up being my favorite thing, you know, in a year when I finish that. So it's it's going to shift and change, just like my favorite you know favorite novel of all time is going to change over time. It's yeah, it happens.
1: I, again, my mind is working overtime. So, of all the things that you've written and published, mm-hmm. which one would you most like to see adapted to a movie?
2: Oh man! Um, Don't hate me. <laughs> definitely, definitely, Goldfish will be hard. It'd be super, it'd be really hard. It'd be a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy issue. How do you between there to me? Um, on a. a phew, Herald on Places makes the most sense, probably not as a movie, more as a TV, episodic TV show. I did I did write the pilot episode for it uh, in the hopes of maybe starting to shop it around a little bit. I just never got around to doing it um, because as a long form story, you know, especially in today's day and age of streaming where you can run a six episode, nine episode, 12 episode arc of a story. I think that kind of I think Colin's story in Herald and Herald on Places would work really well as kind of in that medium. So I think that's the one that I would love to see on the big screen, because I think it has viable lessons for kids. I think it's something that isn't really out there um, or hasn't been out there very much, even though it's a world story. And there's been a lot of world stories. It kind of moves away from a lot of the the tropes that are attached to it. And it does blend in a lot of other wonderful, you know, mythology and folklore pieces. So I think that one would be the one I'd like to see the most. And
1: this interview would be nothing if it did, wasn't rounded up by this last question, which is where can people connect with you? So do you have social media, email, website, snail mail, blog, uh, meta, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok? I could <laughs>
2: go on. Uh, yeah, sadly, I have them all, <laughs> which is depressing to say. <laughs> um, I do. I've only recently joined TikTok as an experiment to see if there was any value in marketing books and there is, but it's so much effort and I'm not, you know, of the age (laughs) for TikTok anymore. Uh, But yes, I'm on all the socials. Uh, You can find me in most places under Andrew Buckley author. Uh, My website is andrewbookleyauthor.com, which has all my links uh, links to my books and my socials on there. Uh, Plus links to Words of the Academy, which is the writing school is also, you can also find that through there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the central hub. So com will get you access to me in a variety of different forms, whether you want it or not.
1: And I think that's the best that any author can do is get a writing page, an author's page, yes. and link everything to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Then people don't have to search too hard for you.
1: So I, I'd like to end this interview here, but I can't because we didn't even talk about your writing school.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, we can do that.
1: <laughs> so um, I don't have any questions prepared for it. So could you give us a a, a rundown about uh, what you do, what kind of stuff you do, uh, how to get involved, how much does it cost, uh, all these wonderful things.
2: So if you go to wordsmithacademy.com, you will find our online writing school. We launched it in November 2019. As most people are aware, three months later, there was this massive global pandemic (laughs) that screwed up a lot of things. And so we had a few growing pains, uh, but as of the last year, we've really started to grow the school. Uh, We currently have um, a lot of live classes that are scheduled to be running this year from a whole bunch of different wonderful writing instructors who are all industry professionals. For example, we have Brian Bradley, who teaches um, TV writing classes. Um, He's a TV writer in Los Angeles who's worked on Mad TV and Scrubs and all kinds of wonderful shows uh and has been a tv writer for uh, the last decade uh brad schreiber who is who worked with chris vogler who wrote um uh oh good lord his book's escaping my (laughs) my brain the hero's journey but not the joseph campbell version the chris vogler version um brad schreiber worked with him uh has been a story consultant he's a screenwriter author uh, public speaker he's teaching screenwriting classes uh Judith Hill, uh, a wonderful poet from Colorado is teaching poetry classes this year. Uh GMB Kamichuk, who's a comic book writer and artist out of Saskatchewan, is teaching comic book writing. So we have all these wonderful instructors, uh, myself included, who teaches novel writing uh for the most part, uh, who teach live classes. Uh we have self-paced classes that people just want to download the classes and you know do them at their own pace. Uh, We have a full-length novel writing course, and we'll also have a full-length poetry writing and comic book writing course before the end of the year. Uh, We have story coaching services if people really need help, you know, sorting out their query letter or, you know, rewriting their first few chapters or need a full story developmental edit uh, done on their manuscript. We offer all those kind of services at various price points. Classes run between 45 to 85 US dollars. Um, The self Pace course is currently on special at $100, but we'll be going back up in price soon. Uh, so there's a, we got a whole bunch of fun stuff. So if you're interested in any aspect of writing, uh, we do have, we, we should be, we're either covering it already, or we're going to be covering it within the next year. And we're going to keep growing that and taking on more awesome instructors to work with the school.
1: That sounds fantastic. And I think anybody who wants to seriously pursue a career in writing might want to consider something like that.
2: It's a good place to start, if nothing else.
1: If nothing else, mm-hmm. Andrew, thank you very much for all this time. Because uh, I mean, we've we've gone into overtime now, and wow. I, I may have to turn this into two episodes because I there's very little I want to take out of this uh, this conversation. So thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Thank you for your patience with my silliness over all the emails and stuff back and forth.
2: Oh, well, um, I appreciate it. Thank you for it's, having it's me. It's been
1: fun. It's been informative. And, uh, you know, enjoy your sunny Okanagan.
2: And uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all these things. These kind of conversations are always super fun.
1: Aren't they, though, eh? Mm-hmm. All right. Have yourself a good day.
2: You too. Thank you.
1: You have been listening to Between the Lines. In future episodes, I will not only be speaking with Canadian authors and writers, I will also be speaking with those From the other side of the writing industry, editors, agents, and publishers, in the hopes of getting a better understanding of how it all works together. If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and content. Send all your comments, suggestions, or any questions you'd like to have a guest answer to me at podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to visit me at www.therandylacy.ca. While there, look for the Buy Me a Coffee button to help support the podcast. Thank you for your time and your ears. Tune in, be inspired, and write on.
0: In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there.